Luke chapter 12 today we'll be in. Uh, I'm going to read it and then um, we'll, we'll dive right in. Luke chapter 12, you have your Bibles. We'll be in uh, verses 35 through 40. When you get there, say amen. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready or truly, I tell you, he will get ready He will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve them. And if he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You all may have your seat. We've been going through a series for those of y'all who've been tracking with us for the last month and a half uh, called For the Culture. And during the series, our hope has specifically been, okay, God, what does it look like for us as a family to embody specific values that don't necessarily make us unique, but help unite, help unify us as a family in the work that God's called us to do. And so last week, I got a chance to talk about Uh, and preach through what it looks like for us to uh, display and to be committed to loving candor with one another. And so as I prayed through and thought, what would be um, a good placeholder for us as we continue in the series next week with Pastor Mo? uh, What would be something that would encourage us and, um, and almost anchor us in the reasons why these things are important? So we come to Luke chapter 12, and uh, even in the onslaught, or even as we even just read those particular verses, I mean, you feel the weight of what Jesus is talking about, right? You feel almost this heaviness of, man, what does the meaning of life actually mean? What is it that, what am I as a Christian supposed to really be giving my time and energy to? How would Jesus want me to live? And uh, that weight of the text, I think, can do one of two things. Either it can crush us or it can motivate us and remind us that our lives and what we give our lives to actually matters in the sight of God. Uh, I don't really have any clever points or any of, thing, uh, any of those things today, but really I just want to leave us with two things this morning. That Pastor John reminded us a few weeks ago, I keep calling him pastor. He's not a pastor anymore. John reminded us a few weeks ago that as Christians, we're awaiting people. That as Christians, we find ourselves in this tension of the already and not yet. And so while we wait, though, there's a tendency or a temptation for us to use our waiting either to serve God or to serve ourselves. So my first point today is that Christian waiting involves preparation and not idleness. The text starts by saying, be ready for service. And let me stop there. I need a lot more of that talking today. So how you start is how I expect you to end, all right? Don't tease me. Like um, He says, 
be ready for service and have your lamps lit. Uh, You are to be like a people waiting for their master to return for the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. lit. To acknowledge, uh, to admonishment, Jesus uh, Jesus starts off with in this text. Uh, Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. What does that actually mean? Uh, Well, the context is that in Eastern culture, it was the tendency for the people to wear these long robes as they were going about their day-to-day activity. And when it came to being ready for service, what they would have to do is they would have to pull up these robes and tie them in a knot in order so that they could actually be ready and useful for the activity that they would initially be called to engage in. Jesus is saying right here in be ready for service, it really is a call that you and I as Christians have to be okay with removing things that would hinder us from acting on what God has called us to do. The reality of living life is that uh, uh, the longer you live, the more things you accumulate. The longer that you walk through day-to-day life, there's this accumulation, some of good things and some of bad things. Uh, That if you go to college and you get out of college, you get a good job and there becomes an expectation for progress. How can I be the best at what I am actually doing? And with that comes an accumulation, some of status and power and even material wealth. And and before long, what you can find yourself doing is living for the job more than you live for God. There's the reality that as you get older, that many of us may get married and have children and you're communicating, you're accumulating family members and experiences and, 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 and just the natural things of that come with being a family person. But there can be a temptation to now elevate your family or who you are as a mother or a wife or a father or a husband above what God has called you to be as his son or daughter. There are just things in this life that, 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 that just tether themselves to us that before long we can find hands that used to be lifted up in praise and willing to submit to God so slowly and slowly they just, they just get a little bit lower and lower, loaded down by the cares of this world. The thing about life is that it often convinces us that there are better things to live for other than God or that there are better ways to live other than the way that God would intend for us to live. Most of us, when we think of preparation, um, it's not something that we really like to do. Uh, We don't like to really get ready for things. We just like to have them immediately. So there's a generation, I think, probably with my generation that would look at what their parents were able to build, the lives that their parents were able to build over the span of 20 years. But somehow, uh, we've believed that graduating from college entitles me to actually experience and have the very lifestyle that took them 20 years to build right now. Some of us, we look at married couples and we see uh, marriages that have been uh, together for 15 years. We see the glory of what has, had God has produced over 15, 20, and 30 years, and yet uh, we ignore the reality of what it costs them to get there because we want marriage, a healthy marriage right now, our way. That there's just this reality of we want life to be the way that we want it right now, the way that we want it. 
And what Jesus is trying to remind us is that um, the more comfortable that life gets for you sometimes, the more you settle into things that God never meant for you to settle into. Am I preaching? Um, you may have heard the word, if you stay ready, you won't have to get ready. But that's easier said than done, right? Preparation costs us something. Uh, it, it costs us to do a few things. It costs us to have to make sacrifices. And we don't like to make sacrifices. It's going to cost us to uh, have to be honest about some realities in our life that God may have been pressing the button on, but we've refused to relinquish control of. Uh, three things that I would say we need to do if we're going to actually be serious of removing hindrances is that we're going to have to, one, be honest with the placement of things in our lives that are competing with God. We're going to have to take an honest examination of our lives and say, maybe there's some good things in my life that I've allowed to become God things. Because when I allowed them to become God things, now that's called idolatry. There's a tightrope that blessings from God and us worshiping those blessings that we have to be mindful of which side we're teetering on. But not only that, we need to be willing to actually remove those things that are hindering. It's not enough just to know that something's a hindrance and to do nothing about it. That's like knowing you've been diagnosed with a sickness and then continue to live life as if that sickness doesn't exist. We've got to be willing to remove whatever is hindering us. But thirdly, we've got to do what's required to remain committed until the end. Commitment is, I think, a lost word in today's culture. It's like the first sign of difficulty and challenge we went out. We get married and we recite vows and like make a covenant with someone <clears throat> where we've got it on film. I'm committing to marry you in both sickness and in health. For good and for bad. It's like we've forgotten the worst part of our commitment, commitment right? As if we were exempt from the worser part, we just wanted the better. And so it's no coincidence that Christian marriages today um, are not only just comparable, but we're exceeding the divorce rate of those within the culture. Because a lot of, a lot of people in the culture look at marriage as a, as a liability more than it is an actual commodity or an asset. The culture doesn't view marriage in the way that would look at it from a standpoint of something that betters you, but actually something that takes something away from you. Um, Christians, have we believed that very lie? We don't understand that anything that God calls us to requires a level of commitment, not just in the beginning, but to the very end. Uh, Jesus says, I want you to be prepared. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, I want you to... Um, have your lamps lit. So what does that mean? Well, uh, in Eastern culture as well, the only way to really uh, maintain light was to carry around these lanterns that were filled with oil. And unlike our lanterns today, there really was just a cotton swab uh, at the top of it. And so moment by moment, the more that that lamp burned, they would have to pay particular attention 
on maintaining the wick and removing anything that would cause it to go out. And so when Jesus says to keep your lamps ready or to keep your lamps lit, he's saying that I'm actually asking you to engage in a continual replenishment of the hope in which I've given you. If you've walked with the Lord long enough, then you know that hope often leaks. That there's one day and one moment of time where you feel completely confident and assured that God, what God has said and what he has promised in the future will actually take place. But then there's another moment where crisis hits and suffering comes our way, where that very same profession and acknowledgement, that very same lifting our hands up on Sunday morning and singing songs about this hope leads us to stand cold, still, and stiff because of the reality of today I find that my hope is leaking. I don't know if I'm as sure about what God has said as I once was. See, the lamp was something given to us by God himself. That if you're a Christian, then that means that you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, uh, not only for your salvation, but for the security of every single day of your life, knowing that God has sealed me and that there's nothing that can separate me from his love. But that doesn't ignore the feelings of everyday life. That part of us being sealed doesn't mean that life doesn't impact us or have, uh, uh, have negative effects on the, the hope that we've been given from God himself. Uh, this imagery is that of a present world as a place of darkness and night in which one is tempted to fall asleep. I want you to think about that reality. Think about the consumption of entertainment, the consumption of of things that take place in relationships, think about the friendships, think about your interactions with other people. It's important for us to surround ourselves with people who feed hope into us, not take hope from us. What do I mean by that? At some point, we have to acknowledge that friendships or Christian community is more than us going to the movies together. That Christian community is more than us going and watching the Super Bowl together. That God's intentions for his church is for us to mutually edify and encourage and stir one another on in love and good deeds, right? And so that means that if you only surround yourself with people who want to have a good time but don't possess any form of godliness, then guess what? You're going to become like them. That if we only surround ourselves with people who are only providing propaganda of what the world has to say in their conversations, but never can get us that word, we're going to find ourselves depleted and depressed. There is a responsibility for you to not wait on someone else to replenish you, but for you to position yourself around the things that God has provided for you to grow and actually replenish your hope on a day-to-day basis. We're talking about the why. Why? So much conversation about the church is this and the church is that and the X. Uh, look, y'all, the church has survived pandemics before. This ain't the first time the church has had to go through something like that. But the lie that we're believing as Christians is that somehow because of a pandemic, that the church's value in my life is no longer the same. What I need is to look elsewhere. All I need is to be around Christians once a month. 
I can just watch the stream. I'm good. I don't, I really don't need to show up and pray. I, I, I pray by myself. I'm good. These are just lies. Because you know what you are experiencing when you are in true biblical community. You know what it's like and how encouraging it is to have people text you, not to gossip, but to text you about, hey, how can I pray for you? You know the benefit of sitting under the word of God on a regular basis and how that begins to feed your soul, your soul, change your appetites, uh, strengthen you not to fall into the temptations that you probably previously fall in apart from Christ Jesus. I fear that we've placed way too much confidence in our flesh into thinking that we know better than God about how to care for our own souls. And my question is, where has that really gotten you? Keep your lamps lit is a challenge for you and I to actually take on the responsibility of not just caring for ourselves well, but caring for others well. Your absence affects other people. It does. As pastors, to look out and not see our family members here, that affects us. Because now, instead of spending energy in the word and in prayer and in the, doing the things that God's called us to do, now we got to chase y'all down. Now we got to call y'all 50 times just to get a response. And we ha- that means that we have to say no to other things and other people who also have needs as well. God's given graces to you. He's given these things for your good and for your growth. And he says, keep the lamp, the lamp lit. But, but we got to understand the why. So my second point is this, and I'll be out your way. The second point is Christian waiting is worth it because of what awaits us. He says, blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. And truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve you. Thank you. Serve them. And if he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn, finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this. That if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. How good is it that God provides us with what we need to know in order to be prepared? This shows the heart and intention of our God. That he doesn't want his people to be uninformed or uninformed. That the weight that God is calling it to requires preparation. But look what he says awaits us. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready. Have them recline at the table and then come and serve them. I want you to to just let that soak in. That the Christian is placed their trust in a king who has left to prepare a feast for us who has left to prepare a kingdom for us to experience. And for those who are prepared, he will return for us. And then it doesn't say that when he opens the door, he's going to be barking all these orders for us to do certain things. 
It doesn't say that there's more work for us to do uh, that he's going to put on our shoulder. No, look what it says. It says he will be the one to get ready, meaning that he had to get up from his chair. He will be the one that will have you recline at the table, meaning he's made a seat for you to enjoy this feast. That the ultimate Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has decided to do a role reversal with you and I and say, I'm going to become your servant even though you really deserve to be mine. This is what makes our faith so beautiful. Is that Jesus came down from heaven to earth, gave up his life so that we could have life, And then when we're with him, he continues to model the life of a servant by setting the table for us so that we can enjoy him forever. Who else is like that? Who else would position you in their kingdom as an heir and not just a servant? Who else would shower you with the blessings? Paul says that he's given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That you have everything that you need right now. And when you're in eternity, you will have everything that you need forever. He's given to you and I. What the text is really calling us to is faithfulness. And I think that faithfulness in a lot of ways has become this like curse word. Where it's like. Asking people just to commit to be where they say that they're going to be, to do what they say they were going to do, and just show up. That's light work. That's not not worthy work. But, But we see here in the text that faithfulness is rewarded in God's kingdom. And here's the thing. Uh, You can't make someone faithful. There's no amount of punishment. There's no amount of convincing. There's no amount of rebuking to make someone want to be faithful. That's a hard issue. And by faithful, I'm not talking about perfection. It simply is that there must be in the kingdom people who would say that, man, I want my presence to be felt. I want to live a life where the Medial or the small or the, the, the things that won't be seen are done not to please men, but to please God. The thing that we look for in any leader is not their gifts. It's simply, are you just faithful? Because I can work with somebody who's faithful and not the most gifted because I know they have the heart of a servant and not someone to be served. And you've got to ask ourselves the question that why is it so difficult just to find faithfulness today? And I think it's because faithfulness is slow work. It is just slow work that requires discipline. And in our society, I think that we're not convinced that just doing something repeatedly over time is worthy work. Because the outcome requires delayed gratification rather than immediate gratification. But if we live for moments instead of living for eternity, we will always be convinced that what God is calling me to isn't worthy work. 
because there's no promise that you'll actually see the fruit of your labor in this life. God, Jesus is always saying, I don't want you to live for what you can simply experience and, and, uh, in, in, in this life, but I want you to build up and store treasures for a life to come. Why? Because you can buy that new Lamborghini and next year it'll be half of its value. Because you can, store, you can fill your houses with nice furniture and nice clothes and, and, and all of these good things and in an instant that all those things disappear in a fire. That you can strive with all of your might and energy, building up your business or building up your brand, but doing it for the wrong motives and lose it. All because Jesus says you did that for you and not for me. Jesus is saying, I want you to live for more. I want you to understand that faithfulness leads to treasures in a life to come that are not penetrable by moth or dust or fading glory, but that will last forever. And faithfulness will always seem boring. It will. <clears throat> but, but I think that we have to be careful in realizing and unearthing why does faithfulness seem boring to us? I think that we've believed three lies about this life and about God. One, that God is not concerned with the everyday details of our lives. Two, that God doesn't reward faithfulness. So what's the point? And three, that God gives us enough time to get it right. He says, blessed will those servants the master finds alert when he comes. How would you like God to find you? That's a question that every single day I got I to gotta put on my wall because I'll forget. I'll forget that, man, my life is about pleasing God and living for God. And we got to ask, ask ourselves the question is how do, in what condition do I really want God to find me in? Do I want God to find me with bitterness and resentment toward my spouse and my heart? Do I want God to find me with broken and fractured relationships amongst his people that I've refused to seek reconciliation with? Do I want God to find me apathetic and not being a steward with the little amount of time that he's given me to make him known and to spread his glory across the face of the earth? How do we want God to find us? He says, truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, and then come and serve him. Um, the beauty of these words is that Paul puts this in perspective for us. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, man, I, I can look at all that I've, been that I've gone through in my life. But in looking at all that I've been through, all that life has cost me, I in seeing the eternal glory that's being prepared for me, puts everything in proper perspective that everything I've gone through is but light affliction. It's but light momentary affliction. And the only way that you could ever see that or experience that or believe that to be true is if you have something that you're constantly looking at, waiting for and preparing to actually receive and experience. 
That's, that's the only thing that keeps us going as Christians, hope. That is it. Because there's enough things in his life to quench hope if it weren't for knowing that God's working to provide something greater for us in the days to come. That's it. And lastly, the last few verses, he says, if he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if a homeowner had known at what time the thief was coming, he would not have let his house been broken into. You also be ready because the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Y'all, we've been given the itinerary of God's plans without the exact time and details of when those plans will be executed. So as you sit here today, we all have to keep in mind that tomorrow is not promised. And it's easy to nod our heads now and to say, I get it, I know, but change nothing about the way that we actually live our lives. Because if we really believe that to be true, then we got to wrestle with the question of if I really believe that tomorrow either Jesus could crack the sky and come back for us as his church or that I could breathe my last breath, then what would change or what needs to be changed? That is the sobering realization that we all have, regardless of how old you are. You could be five years old. You could be 40 years old. You could be 70 years old. I heard one pastor say is that none of us actually know how old we are. None of us actually know who in this church, gray hair doesn't show you to be old in the kingdom. That just means that God, actually, if you live 70 years and someone dies at 15 years, they were the old ones, you're the young one. That there's this this realization that tomorrow is not promised for us. And Jesus is simply making plain to you and I to say the reason why I'm calling you to be prepared is so that you won't get caught off guard. The perfect picture of that reality, of course, is in Jesus. That the very statement in John that Jesus says as he looks over the 33 years of his life and and Jesus was the only one that could perfectly complete and, and, and finish everything that God had given him. And as we look to him, we we have to say, man, God, it just highlights the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, because we often leave things unfinished. We don't only, we don't only leave things unfinished. But often for many of us where our lives are filled with loose ends, there's things that we have started. There's things that we know God has called us to do. And even if we started it and didn't finish it, there are so many things that we ain't even get started yet. And fear and doubt and whatever, whatever else is out there have just kept us from just saying, God, let me just, I've put this to the side for too long. It's time to put my hand back to the plow. I've put this off for too long, God. I don't want to meet you face to face and think that I somehow have any type of legitimate excuse for why I didn't do what you called me to do. There will be no sufficient excuse when you stand before God and God looks at the things that he had already 
purposed you to do in this life. Your job won't be an excuse. Your kids won't be an excuse. Your pocketbook won't be an excuse. The relationships or your trauma won't be an excuse. None of that. Excuses work with us. They work with you and I. We can tell each other a whole bunch of excuses. But God knows, God saw what you were doing when no one else was, saw what you was doing. God saw how you used your time when no one else saw how you were really using your time. And this is not a dictator who's going to look at us and be like, condemn us for our, no, 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 no. The grace of God is sufficient. The love of God, the covering of Jesus is sufficient enough to accept us. But Jesus has said in his word, y'all, and I want you to understand this about the life to come. That as a Christian, every single word, every single deed that you and I have done will be brought to the big screen and it'll just be us and Jesus. And he's going to look through the Rolodex of our lives. And he's going to say, well, you said this. Well, you did this. You did that. Da, 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 da. Oh, you, you thought you were doing ministry for me. Okay, let's, all right, let's test it. And they're going to have to all pass through a fire. And he's going to be the judge. And only what we did for Jesus will last. Which means that everybody ain't going to have the same amount of riches. Everybody ain't going to have the same quality of life. Not that you're not in the presence of God. Not that it's going to be better than anything you ever, ever experienced. But there are going to be people that got bigger mansions than others. There are going to be people that were unheard of. They weren't the celebrities that were touring the country. They weren't the people that we would uh, want to uh, uh, retweet or we quote. I believe that there are going to be people in the remotest parts of the world who never even tasted glory on this side of earth, but will spend eternity the biggest, the best, the greatest of riches because their heart was, God, I just want to live for you. I don't need fame. I don't need popularity. I just want to be faithful. Jesus was that person for us, y'all. He's the one that we can look to and say it's not about the amount of time. It's about how we use the time that we're given. It's about what we give ourselves to. It's the why behind why we do what we do. That it has to be for God. So I want to encourage you today. Not just in reminding you of the great hope that we have, the eternal promises that have been provided for us. But I want to do what Peter and the apostles, that they're constantly trying to remind Christians, brothers and sisters, live for the life to come. And that may cost you everything in this life. But whatever you gave up pales in comparison to anything that you're going to gain or receive in the life to come. Charles Spurgeon says this, and I'm going to end it. He says, the glory of God's faithfulness is that no sin of ours has ever made him unfaithful. Today, you can make a decision to God before God. To say, God, I don't want to keep living the same way. Would you help me have the courage and the strength to actually step out in faith in what you've called me to? But if you don't know this Jesus, that today you also can make a decision that will change the rest of your life. 
that you can place your trust in a God who has better plans for your life than you could ever come up with. And that you don't have to try harder or be better or strive more, but you can rest in the reality that if you trust Jesus to be who he says he is, if you trust that he actually lived the life that's proclaimed in this book, that he was a perfect, sinless son of God, fully human, fully God, came to this earth, gave up his life, spilled his blood, rose from the dead after three days, and you too can have eternal life. And you can be the one, not like the unwise steward who heard about his master leaving and thought, well, I've got, a, I've got more time. And then when the master shows up and cracks open the door, only those that were ready were allowed to enter in. There'll be no more time for you to go back and get a little bit more oil and then come knocking on the gate. Hey, God, I'm ready now. I actually believe it. Let me in. By that time, it'll be too late. And the words that you will hear from that God, from Jesus Christ, will be depart from me for I never knew you. It will be how we respond to what God has said that will ultimately prepare us as to whether or not we will encounter a stranger, as to whether or not we will encounter someone who doesn't know us and we don't know them, or that we encounter someone who we're able to fall into loving arms of because we've known them and we've actually lived our lives in light of the profession of faith that we've made, that he is who he is, that he will do what he says he will do, and that he's calling us to live a life, not to beat us down, but to lift us up. Amen? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that um, the seeds of your word will land on fertile soil, Father. I thank you for your help and I thank you. And I ask just that you would just use it in our hearts, Father, that we would have a renewed sense of urgency and a renewed sense of desire to actually live our lives and make the most of every single area of life that you've given us, Father. Father, we rest in your grace, a grace that is not deficient by any means, a grace that doesn't run out, but a grace that is all that we need all the time. Father, let that be our motivation, not to simply try to earn something from you, Lord, but to rest in what you've already given us, what you've already prepared for us, Lord. You've done all the heavy lifting, but I pray that we'd be responsible to own what you've called us to own, to play a part in the journey towards you, that we would be those that are ready, prepared, responsible, but also hopeful, and that we would see our role and responsibility to continue to push that hope, continue to, to spread that hope to those who know you and don't. We ask it on Jesus' name.